Thanks for tuning in to another Wound Care Voices podcast from Molnica. I'm your host, Andrea Kulshaw from the Professional Education Team. This episode is about the impact of how healthcare has changed since the COVID pandemic started to affect our lives some two years ago. How have patients and colleagues changed? What is it like to be a new healthcare professional now? And how do we create opportunities for up-and-coming junior wound specialists? What do we lean into as opportunities? And what do we fight to get back for our patients? Your wound care voices today are Jane Jolly and Sarah Sage, who've worked together for many years at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia. Jane is a clinical nurse consultant, holds a postgraduate degree in wound management and is a coordinator for the Chronic Wound Service. Sarah has a focus in podiatry, a master's in public health and is the co-manager of the Social Work and Culture Diversity. Over to you, Sarah. Thank you very much, Andrea. Um, Jane and I have just been talking a lot about um, the changes in Melbourne, moving from having a COVID crisis and a code brown management into looking after patients in a COVID normal situation because we're certainly going to be having changes to the way we deliver healthcare and manage complex conditions for the next two years probably. What do you think, Jane? Yeah, I think the big thing that we've been speaking about is that we're not, you know, when the crisis started, we were kind of waiting for the crisis to go away and for us to go back to normal. Um, And, you know, COVID normal or living with COVID has been thrown around (laughs) everywhere at the moment. But for us as clinicians, we're not going back to what we were. And I don't know, I feel like this is the first time that we're sitting with it to say, it's not going back, it's changed forever. And some of that's good and some of that might not be good, but what do we, how do we negotiate that and change that and make that work for us? And then also, you know, as wound professionals, um, whatever profession you come from, you know, we have a little bit more experience and you know when we were training up to be specialists in this area what opportunities were we given that maybe haven't been given to people in the last two years so what does that mean for our workforce and therefore what does it mean for our patients and i think it's hard because we're we're both healthcare professionals but we're also people who have also living through COVID. so it's like personally we're never going back to 2019 but professionally yeah what what do we take from it like what have we missed and what do we want to do like what has been a good surprise for us so so what do you think is a good surprise I think that it's been a disruptor not one I would have chosen but I think that it has really allowed us to think about what is really important and what what ways we can do things differently that works. And it's also allowed us, I think health is generally quite slow for change, not in a bad way. We're cautious because we don't want to harm people. But in this setting, we've been have to bring clinics up in two weeks and just see how they go as they go. That's new for us. We're normally very... Um, plan things six months in advance, think about the, you know, risks and benefits. You know, that's how health traditionally have been. And now we've been put into this really rapid response. Um, 
not all in wound care, obviously. Yeah. Some of it has been in wound care, but not all in wound care. And I think that rapid response um, feeling, I don't think will go away really quickly. And I think that in a good way, in some ways, let's, you know, the research I think will change instead of doing research in this very formalized, planned way, we might actually be doing kind of messier research that's actually on the patients that walk through the door rather than trying to find a group that is our perfect, perfect. patients that <laughs> which, don't represent anyone else that we actually see. <laughs> which might suit wound research better because yep. the biggest problem with, well, not the biggest problem, but it is very hard to find the perfect group of patients to do wound research on. Yeah, by the time you add your exclusion criteria, which is a lot, um, pretty much all of our patients do not meet it. Yes. Uh, certainly in Melbourne and our patient group and yours would be the same as most of them, a lot of our older patients are from uh, non-English speaking backgrounds, different cultural groups, um, their cognition is compromised, so how can they consent sometimes? So that's a really challenging area Yeah, and I think sometimes when we read this beautiful research, hmm. um, it just doesn't, it's not generalisable to our group. Yeah. And then when people approach us to do research, you know, it is such yeah. a small and stringent group. Yeah. It, it's, recruitment is so tough. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's opened our eyes to how yeah. we look at gathering our research differently, Yeah. Um, which we may not have got there so quickly unless we had a bit of a disruptor. I also think the secrecy around research, which is not one of the things we were going to talk about, but <laughs> the secrecy about research is quite interesting because historically people who are working on areas would actually not share a lot of their information and certainly not share preliminary information in case other teams got the jump on them and things like that. I don't think we've done that in wound because it's so hard to find participants. Um, but I think the fact that everyone has just put their research online allowed for even pre-print um, analysis and feedback and even short parts of data, like small bits of the data, not the whole cleaned up data, has been a really great way of showing like that collaborations since we can't go to conferences or other ways of working internationally. Um, so I think that would be, yeah, some really cool options around that. And, you know, you say secrecy of research. It just flagged to me um, that I think that the wound, you know, I can only talk about the our experience, <laughs> experience and my experience, yeah. but but the I think the wound community is a very generous and kind community in terms of sharing knowledge, not yeah. wanting to reinvent the wheel. Um, and I think it's an amazingly strong community in terms of that um, <laughs> potentially you're spending a lot of your time explaining what you do and <laughs> your interest and no one really understands yeah. it. Um, so you do a lot, you end up being really good at yeah. explaining constantly what you do. And I think um, we've come a long way in, well, since I started, um, you know, it's a different, it's different than it, it was. And I think part of that is because we've kind of built off each other's experience and protocols and it's a gen, it's generous, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think so too. I was going to say just a side thing. I haven't been to a party for a long time, but when you tell people what you do, do you either find that people are either completely grossed out? And won't talk to you or completely fascinated. <laughs> like, yet to get the 
fascinated person. Okay. So just so you know. fascinated people, but most people are grossed out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Podiatry or, or, you know, people think that I treat kids. So that's nice that you're a children's doctor and. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Close. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing about that generosity that I was thinking about in terms of workforce and people coming through and being interested in wound because they choose it as an interest and lean into it and sometimes had an experience that has been positive is that I think one of the big things is it's a skill. You know, um, I joke that in my family I'm the closest thing to a tradie because I do things (laughs) with my hands. Um, And you learn by watching others, having someone look at what you're doing. You know, I wield a scalpel and do some pretty gnarly stuff to people and you don't start there. You don't don't enter knowing how to do that. And the last two years have set up, unfortunately, an inability to have someone watch and monitor or if someone has an interest and they want to come into a clinic or follow you around on a ward round, that hasn't happened for two years. That's not even that. So the other component of that is that the challenge is that we have, like even those of us who are running services, which both of us are, we've actually just had a complete decimation. So even though we're running a service, it's a reduced service. It's a mixed methodology service. So it's part telephone checking in, part hands-on. So even if we wanted to have people in, like I've still had training doctors and new staff members starting that team, it takes a lot longer for them to get any kind of exposure experience to the to the practice. Um, and you're right, it's a skill base. And if you're not practicing it and you're not using it all the time, you can either... It, delays your onset of skills or you can lose skills as well. Like bandaging is probably the same as debridement that, you know, like there's, it's a bit of an art form. It's not, it's not just a technique. And so you kind of have to adjust it for each patient, each size at the feel of the day, how they're responding. And if you just don't get as much practice at that, um, it's not that it's going to be wrong for those people, but it might just not be as finessed as comfortable. And I think it's a lot easier to, tell someone at the start of their bandaging or debridement or whatever it might be career that, oh, there's a way of doing this. If someone's been doing it for two years and then you come in and say, oh, it might not be the right thing, that might not be received with the same amount of, (laughs) you know, that it was a, you know, you were trying to help. (laughs) Yeah. And I suppose the other thing is that um, that we, we do learn off each other and, as a general rule, you know, the wound practitioners do do a lot of collaborative yep. work. You know, you're a lymphedema specialist, I'm a offloading specialist, and we yep. can kind of come together to get the best of yep. worlds. Yep. I've, we're not doing that and we're not giving each other that face-to-face feedback. Are we actually losing that culture of yep. debate? Yeah, and not even – and it's – um because I think, you know, in healthcare, you know, what do you do? You, you look at a patient and you go, I think they've got this condition or I think they need this, and then you're building an argument, all the reasons that to fit your hypothesis. And then, yeah, you need another person to come in and say, actually, have you thought about this side? That either changes the hypothesis or it changes maybe your treatment plan. And so we're not having those conversations or we're sending, for safety reasons, we're sending people to this other specialist on their own 
um, without that ongoing conversation. And I think for complex patients, I mean, this is not news to either of us, but for complex patients, that just doesn't work well because they could either go down a treatment plan for a while that might delay treat their outcomes overall, or they might assume that they've ha- they're going to be have a healing trajectory because we've had them on maintenance plans for this period of time too, but maintenance for what? So, you know, maintenance until COVID's over, t- until I can treat them actively, or uh, but then if it's after six months, we might have given people a false sense that their wound, in my case, was healable, or maybe they've had complications because we haven't act- treated them actively. And I think the challenge for us now, we do feel a little bit like things are on the improve in this week yeah. of recording. Who knows <laughs> what's ahead of us? But yeah. um, the challenge for us is how can we do this but not think we're going back to the way it was? Because yeah, it's not going to happen. So yeah. things that have been really positive is obviously this um, technology and I think most health services have um, had to um, lean into technology more yep. than ever before. Yeah. Even little things like cameras on um, cameras on computers was not a done well, deal. I mean, we remember in twenty twenty, we it was an, a national shortage. There was nothing on shore, so it was actually hard to even get computers to run a WebEx or a telehealth consult. Now we're washing them, which is great. <laughs> but I think it was like three or four months we actually couldn't get. We had a shortage of microphones plus webcams, for example. Yeah, so it was yeah. like the basic. Yeah. So now we're kind of set up. Yeah. Um, so the challenge now is not waiting until we can go back to what we were, but, but actually using what we've now got, which might mean, and I certainly am, don't have all the answers, but might mean can we telehealth another practitioner in to the room yeah. to do that clinical learning to do that comprehensive care and is it actually more possible in some regards um, for, you know, can we telehealth the patient's loved ones in there? Yeah. Are we doing that? And now that we're hopefully coming out of a bit of crisis mode yeah. rather than waiting for us to go back to the norm, how do we kind of yeah. push ahead and use what we've gained in a positive way. The problem is that we're tired. Yeah. And so it's hard when you're tired, although, and sort of emerging from this to sort of think clearly, we probably need a bit of clear air. (laughs) Whether we get the clear air, I'm not sure for a little while. Um, But I guess, I mean, I think you make a good point. I was thinking, oh, it's hard because like, again, it's a skill set and a lot of what we do is hands-on. So things like, you know, vascular assessment, lymphedema assessment kind of need to see the person or touch the person to sort of see what's going on. But you're right. So one of the areas we're probably getting better success for telehealth or useful telehealth is interpreter services because we've got so many different um, languages. So we've got, you know, our top six, but then we've got un- unusual ones like um, South Sudanese Arabic, which is quite tricky to find an interpreter for. Um, and so that allows the opportunity of having almost a face-to-face interpreter, um, but not physically there. And so it's better than a phone interpreter service because you've still got facial recognition and things like that. And I think the other the other thing that I'm just thinking about is the group that we are treating now is, you know, and this is for all of healthcare, is different. Like we need to acknowledge that our community is different in 
a lot of ways. And I'm just thinking about, well, for us, it's there's a group that haven't had surgeries that they potentially should mm-hmm. have had. They're delayed elective surgeries. They might be um, prevent, uh, you know, not going to preventative health care, you know, dental. These things aren't happening. GP appointments. They're not seeing the same amount of people. And then also their communities have shrunk. People yeah. aren't seeing, um, they don't, they're not seeing their wider community as much as they were. Um, and people are still quite fearful. And there is a, you know, we used to say, come one, come all. You know, yeah. we would treat Whoever in the big need group. Just bring them in. We'll, we want more the merrier. They're your people, bring them in. Yeah. Great. They're here to help. But that yeah. is not the case anymore. And naturally, people are actually not bringing people in. It's yeah. a, there's there's a two thing to that. And it's a, it also changes the power imbalance a little bit too. Like, I mean, we're very aware of that. And so we factor it into our consults. But still, you're in a, you know, a patient is coming in an unfamiliar environment, having, you know, debridement or banishing, being told what's wrong with them, maybe being assessed as whether they're complying with, you know, recommendations. So you want to have your team there, which is really tricky. I would say one of the things I think is positive from that is there is a lot more trust of the patient and the family, whether it's always warranted is the different question. But I have seen a greater willingness with this chronic disease group for people to say, if you don't feel safe coming in, if you'd rather stay home and do your own wound care, why don't we just delay the appointment for a week if you feel safe and you're not worried? Um, whereas in the past, I think there would have been a tendency to be maybe a little bit more hovery, maybe a bit more helicopter style, um, which some patients need. But there is a group of patients that would respond quite well, um, and especially patients who might ultimately be looking down the barrel of a maintenance plan in the case of chronic venous leg ulcers or lymphedema, that they need to learn to take stuff on. I feel like we're we've always all, differ in this. I know, because I get that. It's a very leg wound thing, yeah, but for a foot wound, yeah, we're foot probably still hovery. <laughs> no, no, I agree. And I think there's, that's the challenge, right? When do you know to hover? Um, your patient group's different to mine. I've got a bit of both. But I do think that, you know, for someone who has to learn to take on some of their, their own lifestyle adjustments, giving them the space to do that. And actually because they haven't had social engagements all the other appointments have been cancelled because they're all converted to telehealth. They're not coming to the hospital four or five times a week, which could be a problem. But it also meant as they can focus on some of the lifestyle stuff we want them to do because sometimes we do overwhelm people with lots and lots of activities or lots of consults. And so I do look at it and I say, well, if you can just do one thing, I'd like you to, you know, not again, different to your patients, I'd like you to walk around the block <laughs> um, or I'd like you to, um, do some calf stretches or something like that or a range of movement exercises. And they can do that because they don't have 20 other things on their plate that day. You know, a patient said to me, and that really stuck with me, it was in, it was probably a year ago now, um, they said COVID has basically made the entire community have a diabetic foot problem. <laughs> they can't go anywhere. They're isolated. They ha- it's equaled the playing field. <laughs> it's very distressing. but because yeah, we know how hard those people had it before COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so now and everyone's it was, experiencing you it. You know, people that were facing um, trying to work out how they save their limb, basically, mm-hmm. that were saying no to a lot of social functions. Yep. Well, all of a sudden the whole community was saying no to a whole lot of social functions. It was like 
it took a breath off it uh, off mm. them because they were already making those choices. And also they didn't have to justify why they weren't going to things all the time. Which is so stressful. Yeah. But coming out of that and people were able to come, yeah. you know, this this group, the chronic yeah. disease yeah. group, living with with any issues, if they haven't seen people for two years, they might look significantly different yeah. or and they might be more progressed in their disease or you know, whatever it might be. So social occasions might become a huge stressor again because yeah. it is like going to a high school reunion <laughs> or something like that, seeing a friend you haven't seen for years. I don't go to years. those. So. <laughs> Probably for that reason. So. But, you know, people become quite stressed when there's a time, like, you know, that they want people to think that they were what they yeah. once were. And we're coming on two, three years since people might have seen someone. A lot can happen in two and three years. Yeah. Yeah. and the change of someone, you know, if, you, if someone cognitively isn't doing well two, three years is a long time, yeah. they might appear really differently. So family or the community, if they do see them, might get quite fearful and stressed. So yeah, we're kind of seeing people come in and saying, oh, that wound's horrible and we need to like send that person to emergency straight away. That wound might be on a maintenance plan for, and has been for the last year. Nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is someone's come back into your life. So that's like an interesting concept. Yeah, and I think um, I don't know, but in your services, if your if relatives ring you up on behalf of the patient, but certainly they do with us. So there's yeah, there is a bit of I've seen mum, and she's it, this is awful. Why hasn't something happened? Um, and you're like, I'm looking at the photos, they look fine, <laughs> or they look consistent. I'm not particularly worried at this stage. The yeah. other thing that's happened positively probably yeah. in the last two years is that. Um, I have found that patients more often than not have a smartphone. That, mm. was, that wasn't always the case wasn't two, that years, common. No. two years ago. But I think because of the isolation, if you're going to, you know, if you if you do have a parent or a loved one and you're not able to see them, yep. they went out and bought them yep. smartphones so that they could video call them because, yep. you know, if you weren't able to visit them physically and that was everyone, <laughs> you know, Nana was getting on the iPad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so there we, was a motivation to learn to use that in a and, different way. Yes, yeah, so a yeah. totally different motivation. So yeah. the ability to send photos, the ability to um, have a telehealth appointment, I think some of those have been removed because people are using that technology for their own, you know, it's not just healthcare and, you know, it's a positive. They're, they're trying to connect with their grandchildren. Yeah. People are more motivated to do yeah. that, it turns out, than speak to me. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm I lovely. can't imagine why, Jane. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's part I think that's true. And I think the only thing I would say, you know, from a from a clinician perspective is um, you know, you learn over time that people can put on a brave face or they can be at their best for 10, 15 minutes if they're not well. But after a little while longer, it's harder to fake that or to or to put on their best, their best, um, their best example. So I think 
you know, face-to-face appointments, something that we definitely need to be keeping, especially in our field. You know, one of the some of the things I noticed is people had had consistent telehealth appointments with other services, um, and they had presented in that ten-minute telehealth appointment as doing well, no changes, really stable because they're in their house. They hadn't had to leave the house. They hadn't been walking around. They weren't walking around. And at that moment when the doctor said, how's your pain or how's this going? They were like, oh, no, everything's okay. But having to come to an appointment, which is a burden, um, but having maybe half an hour in the car or the taxi, having to get dressed um, properly and then having to walk 50 metres in, you know, that, that showed you how they were doing really in a lot of ways. And so I think some of those assessments have been missed or people have cut because they've, some of those face-to-face appointments became telehealth very rapidly. And so we missed those early warning signs. So when they came to appointments like mine, that often their telehealth was showing stable, 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 and then I'd see them and say, like, yeah, something's really wrong with your leg <laughs> mm. or something like that, or your walking is really unusual today. And so... We had to, I mean, I think probably the same for you. We had to escalate a lot of patients to hospital in that time frame. Um, so I think, I, you know, the importance of those face-to-face assessments where you see other things other than what someone chooses to present to you, because like any kind of social media, people put a version of themselves forward. So patients are the same. They want to present as well as possible. People want to please. It's normal yeah. human nature, isn't it? Yeah. I tell my physio I do my stretches. Yeah, I told my dentist today that I floss every second day. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a lot less than that. You know, it's very it's human fine. nature. I think. Yeah. Um, but we can factor that in. If we know that people wanted to please us, they want to put their best version of themselves, they, feel, they want to filter themselves a little bit effectively, then we probably just need to factor that in as clinicians so that we know to ask the right kind of questions. And not take it at face value necessarily. I think we'll get better at that. And also I think what I have found is that when we look at all the clinics and the services and everything that's gone on and we come from the same service, so potentially we just advocate well for our service, but um, the wound services have not been pulled. They have maintained. um, And from a wound community I think that there's probably been some highlighting of you do a lot of work that probably keeps a lot of people out of hospital yeah. and they're a very serious group. Um, and when they are in hospital, they're there for a very long period of time generally. Yes. So I think that, yeah, you're right, and I think that's highlighted at much probably more senior levels where maybe our work was hidden a little bit more, like we just got on with things it wasn't as visible. And I think, you know, the, yeah, the value is that our work is visible in that sense. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, if you look at the clinics that have, you know, completely gone to telehealth, you know, the, the wound clinics that I think this would be across the board that they have maintained, um, they have maintained face-to-face, you know, change to telehealth where they can, but it has been seen. And when you look at the guidelines for, Victoria of who was able to stay open depending on which realm it was Mm. in allied health. Um, I was very pleased that um, management or prevention of leg amputation was one of the top ones. It was acknowledged that this is a service that cannot stop because we then pass along a problem that is much bigger 
um, and, you know, sitting down with the executive to say, you, by stopping a service, you'll end up with a lot of people that have that are septic and you'll put more pressure on ICU. Our service has a direct link to ICU. You know, people don't connect those two. Um, and, you know, when we talk about people think um, and often think thing is someone says, a podiatrist would never be needed in emergency. <laughs> well, they obviously don't know what we do. <laughs> <laughs> which is everyone, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're like, well, actually, the group that we treat often end up in emergency <laughs> and yeah. often end up in ICU. And these are serious conditions. Yeah. Um, and, and if they survive that that particular episode they often have a change in their health status, which is often generally worse, which means they're going to need more services as well. Like, yeah. So those additional services will be ongoing. So what will you keep from what, what I, what's the thing that, you know? What I think has worked really well for us is because we had a reduced list, because we didn't have, the physical environment to see as many patients as we had staff for. So we, we changed our list a bit. So we, um, we didn't, like our rooms weren't large enough to have lots of people in the room. So for us, the way we managed that is to find out, well, who was the 15 most important patients for Monday is we would actively manage our list and we would call the next week's patient on the Monday and say, how are you doing? What's working for you? What's not working for you? And so we had this active management, almost like a case management kind of process, which we've never really done before. Um, and it did allow patients to sort of tell us problems before they were really big. So those patients wouldn't have called us. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have checked in. They weren't going to see their GP. But we'd call them and they go, oh, yeah, my leg's really hot and I don't know what's worrying. I thought I'd just wait till Monday. And it's like, well, it's seven days away. Um, <laughs> we all know what can happen to an infection in seven days. Um, but they weren't – they would not have done that and they wouldn't have had a relative necessarily visit them to prompt them either. So we ended up taking on some of that role, but it was really successful for that a certain portion of that patient group to either get them into hospital quicker, get them at an appointment quicker. And so we were really good about mobilising and moving things around to get someone in, which, I mean, it takes more work from our end, but it certainly responded to the patient needs a lot better. Mm, amazing. I think for the group that we've got, we've seen how if we've got the skills in terms of prescribing medications, um, understanding where we can prevent admissions, I think that the group's very dedicated to what that they can what they can do. Um, but what it's made me think is that next next group that we're bringing through, how do we continue to bring through a group that has the same amount of skill that has been given the same opportunities as that that mm. we were given? And I think we need to be a bit more. Uh, yeah, structured about how we do that. One of the things that, you know, we used to come together and do um, case conference or, you know, that kind of yeah. thing on review patients and the WebEx, what we yeah. use, um, has become, made that so much more easy because you can actually include people on all people. sorts of sites yeah. in all sorts of areas, community health you can include. It's not you're not sitting in a room and yep. previously it was kind of always like, well, it, it's just nicer in a room and it is nicer in a room. Yeah. I get that, but it's 
more efficient when you more can inclusive and as inclusive well. yeah. and efficient when you can do it a different yeah. way. I think our case conferences have definitely improved in a in a remote virtual setting. Um, I think. So, you know, think some things are hard. You don't get the same feedback or looks or whatever. But I think in a case conference, you don't necessarily need to see people's faces because they're presenting on a patient case. So it's about the patient. So it's been great that we can pull up the patient notes. I can, if someone's talking, I pull up the photos. If they talk about their results, I pull up the results. People can see them in real time. Um, and so if someone's got a question, they can go, can you zoom in on that picture? I've just noticed this. So that's been really good. It sort of flattens that conversation about those patients. Um, we have also said that there's there's normally a chat function mm. which yeah. allows, you know, we we do a thing with our new grads in Allied Health that um, about speaking up and you know trying yeah. to be more assertive <laughs> and using your voice, and we say that you know for me it's very easy for me to call something on the spot. I'm yeah. used to it, but now with all the technology, there's actually a way that you can pre-plan saying something and it yeah. might be through the chat function that you do it, which is a lot yeah. easier for a brand new clinician. I think the other thing is, because I've, I've had a few new starters as well during this time, and I've got a couple who are quite, you know, like I've got 14 years experience in wounds now and scarily 20 years in healthcare. So it's, you know, adds up. But I think it's really, it's easier. I'm quite confident in my role. So I'm okay to just say stuff, interrupt, whatever I need to do. <laughs> I think as a new starter, yeah, you wouldn't do that. But even if you're not using the chat function, even if you're presenting the patient, I think because you, it just, it changes, not five people aren't staring at you while you're presenting the patient as well. They're all scary. looking at the screen, looking at the clinical information. They're just talking about what the information – it's make, lets you see the information and increases, I think, the confidence of people who are shyer to bring that information out. It also makes me think that, you know, for the – you know, our experience is not that dissimilar and uh, for the experienced clinicians, for – it's actually part of our role now to – encourage those voices and maybe in the last two years because we've lost some of that clinical reasoning you know constant questioning culture which yeah. really makes you really question you know what's going on you know why are you doing it like this why don't you do it like that you should be able to answer all yeah. those questions yeah. and maybe the, in the last two years our clinicians haven't had that and if you are someone that's sitting with 20 years experience Right now in your reset, how do you get people to get those skills again? Yeah. And I think they've just naturally come previously and when we've done education, um, you know, so kindly from our dressing product yeah. people, yeah. <laughs> um, um, we've asked for, you know, clinical, very clinical scenarios, but maybe we need to start asking for leadership. Yeah skills and other types of skills that are really important in wounds and maybe we're missing. And maybe even come from other industries because there are lots of other industries who have worked in remote areas, remote settings. And and so maybe we're not because we've always been lucky to have face-to-face -face settings. We've never had to sort of look at those different ways of learning and skill development. It's those, you know, they call them yeah. soft skills, which I yeah. always hate the term. No, they're really difficult. <laughs> they're really difficult and they're really important. Yeah. And they are probably the really the foundation to yeah. getting all of your other skills. Yeah. I think the only thing I'd say is 
a bit on sort of on that as well. I have noticed with some of my newer starters that um, or newer people, whereas bec- because telehealth or the phone or secure chat on our ver- various platforms is quite easy. I do find that maybe some people are always wanting a little bit of a rubber stamp. Um, whereas in the past, physically you can't be there, you're elsewhere. So they're forced to take a decision, own the decision and learn how that process feels, what happens. Whereas now there's always this sort of this security of just checking. So there's that's that confidence of, of, of taking a decision on and feeling good about it as well. Well, maybe that's education for a senior staff yeah. to know that that's a new field, this yeah. con- this ever-contactable yeah. workforce. And, you know, most organisations are going to electronic notes. So yeah. it's also you can always just dip in, you're never out. Yeah, yeah. Rightly or wrongly. Yeah. Um, so I think those skills are the foundation to the what's next. Yeah. Um, as well as looking at, you know, how do we, I think that clinician, when we talk about resetting, I think clinicians, you know, I think we're all tired. Yeah. But I don't think, I think while we need to take our leave and do all those important things, I maybe controversially would say that to re-energize, we don't need to take a breath and take a step back. We need to lean in to something that is joyful. And I think for clinicians, joyful things are helping patients. Yeah. And and for senior clinicians, it's also mentoring colleagues. Whatever so, it might be. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I think that we're at a point now that we need to say, I, you know, th- th- this may not be for everyone, but I think we need to look at it and say, we're yes, we're tired and yes, we're a tired workforce, but I don't think just taking a break or taking, you know, we need to do all those things too, but I don't think just not doing the extra will make us feel better. Feel better. Yeah, I, I actually think finding something that is fun in terms of yeah. clinician-wise, something that, you know, that you're excited, something that you go home and tell your partner about or, yeah. you know, something that you're like, oh, I'm doing this and I think I did, you know, I tried this or something yeah. new that actually is very energising and I would really um, encourage people to think about that because that's actually going to have the good patient outcomes. Yeah, and I think the other thing is like maybe some of the fatigue, some of the fatigue in some of the groups I think has been because we haven't done our normal work, and so we haven't been out because we've put people on maintenance plans, or we're just we're just waiting till surgery starts, or we're waiting until we can follow up this thing that we need to follow up for that patient. That we're not doing the stuff that makes a difference. Yeah, like I mean, we're keeping them out of hospital, but we're yeah. not doing the stuff that either helps them heal or get on with something. At, something in their life and because COVID meant that people couldn't go out, we're not also getting how their lives are improved by our input. Yeah. Because that has they haven't been able to do anything. So I think that yeah, you're right. I think there's a point to be made around um having the opportunity to sort of do those things, whether it's yeah, useful patient outcomes, useful staff outcomes, seeing that they've the patients have had a positive life experience because of what we've done for them. Yeah. I think that will make a difference. You're right. I think it will help with the fatigue. And, you know, if you are looking at rest or whatever you're doing, I think, you know, even just coming here today, I thought, you know, reflecting and thinking and, you know, for me it's fueled some ideas and some concepts. Um, The other thing about is like active rest. Like how do you 
cut out some time that is um, going to fuel some creative energy. Um, you know, things like I was talking to someone about, you know, carers groups or, you know, leg clubs, those kind of things. When I started, leg clubs online would have been <laughs> like the it would not have happened. No. No way. No. Now, actually to start a yeah. community that doesn't have to leave the house, you know, I don't know, there's, I'm not sure of this research on that, but mm. a group that can come together doesn't have to leave the house, um, you can connect people so much easily. Um, I don't easily. know about league clubs, but I do know that the Australia has one of the most active lipedema support Facebook groups about oh. people who suffer from lipedema. And so um, that is, yeah, widely known as one of the better patient support. And we know factors. that wound yeah. patients, patients that are living with wounds have a lot of appointments, not just for their wounds, but for yeah. everything else that they That's may wrong. be dealing with. Yeah. So, you know, if there is a support group yeah. and you can't get somewhere and you know, whatever it might yeah. be, it actually might be a more accessible way to do things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, quite positive in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, just allowing space for something because I think that what, you know, what leaders are getting are like we're tired, just don't put anything more on us. Mm. And I think there needs to be some sort of ownership of, well, it's not nothing on you, it's just let's do some I mean, different passion projects. Yeah. And that, I mean, that in some ways that's an opportunity as well because we've had a closure of services, which, you know, good or bad, but we've had a stoppage of certain services and um, a reduction of services because it either takes more staff or it takes longer or you've got to do more infection control. So there is this opportunity as we're ramping back up. We don't have to ramp back up to 100%. We could ramp back up to 80% and a passion project that will make a difference in terms of goal setting or patient care or something like that too. It would allow us to put back some research potentially or some projects that would, um, yes, get some long-term benefits from this, it's about this adjustment. It's yeah. about advancing how we treat people. Yeah. We do not want to be treating people today the way, say, you know, in 20 years' time, we want to yeah. be like laughing about what we did today because we've advanced so much, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's where we want to go. We don't want to stay yeah. – on the treadmill, on yeah. we'd want to move forward. Yeah. Um, but how do we do that? And it's, you know, it's everyone's everyone's game. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, if you think about it historically, like hospitals have probably run outpatient services very similar the last 50 years, I'd say. Like people turn up, they go to an appointment, it may or may run on time. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they leave with a follow-up appointment or a plan. So, yeah, I think there is a different way of doing things. Um, I think that the option of backwards and forwards communications with patients um, to either be like a coach or a some sort of ally in whatever they're trying to achieve would be helpful as well. Yeah, I am hoping that the, you know, power will end up in the person that's dealing yeah. with the condition. Yeah. We're not there yet. I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Especially when you've got so many people involved. Mm. Like it's one person with five other people <laughs> or five other health services or something like that. It can be really challenging. Thank you both. Thank you very much, Andrea.
I think this subject is one that many who are listening to us will be able to add their own experiences and hopefully by talking and sharing those experiences with each other, we can move forwards in a, in a positive way to help both our patients and our colleagues. If you've enjoyed listening to this Wound Care Voices podcast, check out the others that we have in our library and keep a lookout for new recordings as we continue to bring you other experiences from new Wound Care Voices around the world. <laughs>